Welcome along to this bite-sized edition of Tax and Lunch. Thanks for joining me. I'm Vincent Lachardi. You're listening to the podcast for tax advisors to high net worth individuals, wealthy family groups and private clients. I'm really excited that you're joining me for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your team so they can also gain the inside perspective. Let's listen in. You have the opportunity at the end of the financial year or towards the end uh, to revalue your client's trading stock closing balance. So this is particularly important if you have clients with trading stock and they have three different values that they could adopt. There's an option under Division 70. The first is cost. The second is market value. And the third is replacement value. So many of you will know that ordinarily trading stock is immediately deductible under Section 8.1, but then depending on your opening and closing stock balances at the end of the year, you are required to do an add back or you are entitled to an additional tax deduction. If your closing stock balance is more than it was at the end of the, at the beginning of the financial year, then you're required to have some additional accessible income and vice versa. If your closing stock balance is less than the opening stock balance, your clients are entitled to an additional tax deduction. And because of this uh, option that your clients have, they might be able to write off some stock, write down values, and therefore potentially reduce their tax liability in the current financial year. Just bear in mind that if your clients do that, then in some instances that will just be a timing difference, in particular because the value that you adopt this financial year for a closing stock figure will be the value that the client needs to use in the next financial year when the stock is sold. And therefore, to some extent, this can be a timing difference but bear in mind, it is an option if your clients are looking to reduce their tax liability for the current financial year. Number two is bad debts. In particular, in relation to uh, the economic conditions that many businesses have suffered, suffered from in the last financial year and a bit since COVID hit, there is an opportunity for clients to revisit their books and in particular their receivables before the end of this financial year to claim an additional tax deduction. If they are on the accruals method of how they uh, derive income, if they have bad debts, they are entitled to a tax deduction for those bad debts. A couple things in this regard that's very, very important the client will need to turn their mind to whether that bad debt has actually gone bad. Is it recoverable? So you might have clients, for example, that have perhaps already tried to recover or start to recover debts from their their own customers, or if they haven't, they may still have that opportunity in the next couple of weeks to do that. You do not need to go through the whole process of actually recovering the debt in order for you to be able to claim a bad debt deduction. But the client does need to ensure that the debt has gone bad. If 
the client does write off the tax debt this particular year, sorry, the bad debt this particular year, and then in a future year, some income is derived. For example, they might be able to recover half the debt, you know, as they keep chasing their own customer, then there will be an, some additional income that will be brought to account next year. But definitely uh, a further opportunity there for clients to revisit their books and work out whether there are bad de debts that can be written down this financial year. The next item is depreciation. Now, this is a very interesting one because in the last year or so, the government has introduced a number of measures as to how clients, in particular small businesses, when you consider the turnover up to 5 billion, we're also talking about very, very large businesses as well. But there are a number of options that clients can use with relation to depreciation. And depending on when they acquired the asset, when it's available for use, etc. But what I want to just raise with you today, which some of you may not realise, if you have clients who have depreciable assets on their books that aren't part of a pool, and where you might have adopted the commissioner's effective life, you can, in certain circumstances, uh, recalculate the effective life of that asset. Now, um, I just want to give you a, a short example of this. And this will usually arise, for example, if the way the asset was originally intended to be used has changed, you will tend to find that if the assets are being used uh, faster or quicker, they will expire much more quickly, their effective life will be shorter, and there is uh, the possibility under the tax law for you to recalculate that effective life and effectively bring forward depreciation expense. And I just want to run through briefly a, a simplified example for you to show you the potential benefit that might be available to clients. These in particular will apply where the assets were acquired and not part of a pool before uh, the temporary full expensing or instant asset write-offs were introduced. So probably assets more than say one to two years old, um, there is an opportunity to bring forward some of that depreciation deduction. So here we have two different scenarios. The first scenario uh, where the effective life is, is seven years, this is before the coronavirus, and the seven years uh, is adopted from the commissioner's very, very large tax ruling on effective life. Some of you might've seen that, where the, the ruling is hundreds of pages and you can pick and choose which effective life you want to adopt. And if you adopt the commission's effective life, you're effectively protected from an audit. But you do have this option of saying, well, the commission's effective life is probably not right for my client because their use of the asset perhaps is more intensive. And therefore in this example, rather than seven years, the client self-assesses and says, four years is right for me. And in that instance, rather than tax deduction of approximately $285,000, you have a tax deduction of around $501,000. So the tax deduction is almost twice as big because of the shorter effective life. The next one is the loss carry back. 
you might have already attended one of my tax and lunches uh, earlier this year in respect of loss carryback. This is only applicable for corporate clients. So if you have businesses run through family trusts, sole traders, etc., they're not eligible for this concession. Um, however, the previous slide about depreciation and the loss carryback measure are designed to work in tandem. So the idea being, based on your depreciation deductions, a client will be entitled to effectively generate losses in their business. And then if they are corporate clients, they're able to unlock tax refunds of taxes previously paid in earlier income years. So this is quite significant. It's an old Rudd Swan government measure uh, from coming out of the GFC. And in effect, as I say, you can have clients unlock previous taxes that they have paid to the extent of their franking credit account. And if you'd like a, a video on this, I do run through these measures uh, in another tax and lunch. You're welcome to let me know. Uh, but this is an excellent opportunity for clients, even if they do, don't use the depreciation methods to create losses, if they are having trading difficulties and they're corporates, they can generate some cash flow through uh, the loss carryback. Just to let you know, you cannot use the loss carryback for capital losses, uh, for losses created by converting franking credits into losses that some of you may know about. That's the gross up method. And lastly, you cannot carry back losses where you are a joining entity to a consolidated group. And it's a, a tried and true, effectively tax planning method where you either have a client who defers income or they prepay expenses. And there's a couple things that I just really would want to bring uh, to your attention on this item. There is a principle from a High Court decision in Arthur Murray and also uh, a tax ruling in respect of, a very old tax ruling in respect of director's fees that's on the screen there for you, IT2534. We'll talk about Arthur Murray first. Arthur Murray effectively says you are not required, or client is not required to pay tax on income, that uh, that particular client has not yet supplied the good or service for. So if you have a client who has effectively prepaid uh, good or service from their, their own customer, they aren't required to include that income in their tax return. It can be deferred until the subsequent financial year when the good or service is supplied. Similarly, with director's fees, IT2534 says that the director is only required to put the director's fee in their tax return once they actually receive the cash. So employees and directors really operate on a cash basis rather than an accruals type basis that many corporates or many business clients will operate under. Secondly, in respect of prepaid expenses, this is something if your clients have uh, additional cash flow that they might be able to use uh, in order to prepay expenses, they can bring forward 
certain tax deductions, but only in relation to the prepayments where those prepayments don't last for more than 12 months. So you can't have a scenario where, for example, a client might prepay five years worth of interest in a silly situation or 18 months worth of interest. They're only going to be able to claim the 12 months. The balance will then be required to be claimed potentially in the subsequent financial year when the interest is actually used in the business as part of the loan. And that's what on the slide you'll see here is what's referred to as the eligible service period. Now, just to let you know as well, and some of you will, will already have seen this before, the concept under 8.1 does not actually require a cash outlay to get your tax deduction. It really is only looking at incurred. So are you what the case law calls definitively committed? So is the client definitively committed to pay that debt or that expense in the future? If they are, well, they've incurred it. And if they've incurred it, it can go in as a tax deduction in the tax return. It might be the case though, that they're not actually in a cash flow sense required to pay that debt for perhaps one, two or three months. And therefore it can be deferred into the subsequent financial year. Now some cash flow traps. Um, first of all, you might recall that this time last year, there was questions being raised by practitioners to the ATO about what about the, the minimum yearly repayment. And the ATO came out around 30 June with an option that was available where you could defer your minimum yearly repayment for a year under 109RD, that's D for dog, not RB. And just be mindful if your clients, in particular, if you're getting new clients that you might not have assisted last year, absolutely crucial you work out with them, did they adopt that method last year? Because if they did, they kicked the can down the road and it must be dealt with this financial year. So it's possible your clients will have two minimum yearly repayments to make, both last year's one and this year's one. I'm not certain yet, I haven't seen anything as to whether the ATO will allow a similar situation this year where this year's MYR can be um, deferred until next year under 109RD. We haven't seen that as yet. It might be a week or two away, it might not happen at all. But for, for our present purposes, it's a trap to have a scenario where your client's got two years of MYR to pay in particular where this year, if you're in Victoria, for example, cash flow has been very difficult for business, you may have a scenario where the client just can't afford to pay two years of MYR. So just keep that in mind. I have seen a couple scenarios as well where clients who had self-managed super funds, um, they, the, the client themselves, the individual stepped in to assist the fund where for example, the, the fund needed to continue to pay liabilities under LRBA to a bank, for example. The client stepped in to help that, to remedy the breach. And what they then paid to the lender was actually considered a contribution. And now they can't get that money back out of their super fund. So just keep that in mind. If you have self-managed fund clients that have had a scenario where they've had a bit of a cash flow 
difficulty over the year, but nonetheless still were funding their liabilities, you might have an issue where a client's actually made contributions. So definitely keep that in mind. And the last one, or second last one for, for this particular point, and I've seen this raised uh, quite a bit recently, using cash flow to get a tax benefit. So I see this, you, you probably have seen recently various companies advertising that you can get uh, various depreciation deductions, you only have to spend lots of money to do that, you know, cars, etc., office supplies. I'm no financial planner, but it's a cash flow trap for clients to just go out spending money thinking they're going to save tax. In effect, they're only getting a tax deduction. It's not dollar for dollar. I don't need to explain all that to you, um, as many of you will be doing the tax returns themselves. But definitely, I would be cautioning clients against just spending their cash flow in order to get a tax deduction. And before I move on to the, the next item, I've I just saw from Damien 100A in respect of the previous discussion that we had, absolutely. So 100A is your reimbursement agreements and you should be definitely looking at that as well if you're making distributions to a bucket company and then how you get the money back out of the bucket company off to the ultimate beneficiary who might be an individual, absolutely important to consider 100A. The next item is, is using losses. So are there losses, either current year losses or prior year losses that your clients might be able to use, in particular if they operate family trusts, in order to, in effect, avoid a circumstance where they're taxed on, on their profits or their accessible income, but they've got losses in other parts of their group. So might, they might have one or two businesses, they might have a trust that's passive with a rental property in it, commercial property, et cetera, that's run at a loss for this year. Have a look to see whether you can distribute some of those profits around the group in order to offset uh, losses within the group. Just bear in mind, if you operate in a private client market that you've got either your family trust elections or interposed entity elections in place, and also considering in particular for companies, whether the company will pass the company loss tests. So the same, the COP test, or the same business test, consider those and don't just assume those tests have been passed. In particular, if you, these are new clients that are coming to you, double check that you have your FTEs in place and double check that the business that the company's running is still the same business that it was two or three years ago. Um, or alternatively, that you pass the COT test, which always comes first. And lastly, on this particular point, just be really cautious about wash sales. So this often happens with shares, where what a client will do, they'll sell a parcel of shares in order to generate a loss. And then the next day, so they do that on 30 June, they absorb their losses and profits, those are set off. And then on 1 July, they go out and they buy the same asset again. Just be really cautious. The ATO has a ruling on that. It's a part 4A ruling, but in effect, the ATO doesn't like wash sales. Number eight is saying thank you. And you'd be surprised the tax deductions that you can get for your clients, for employees, and also for their own customers if they can actually reward their staff or their own customers by offering small gifts. And 
they can actually bring forward um, tax deductions from, from future years rather than giving the gift next year or the thank you. Um, they do that before the end of year. So long as it's not entertainment and there's a fine line to that at times, which is why I've got sort of the balancing act here on this particular slide. Um, they, in most circumstances, they can get a scenario, less than $300 will be no FBT for employees. They'll also be able to claim their GST credits. FBT won't apply for their own customers, obviously, um, but it just gives your client an opportunity. They might have 10 staff, they're able to reward them with a small gift, keep them happy. By the way, they get a tax deduction for that. Um, as I say, just be really cautious. You don't want the client to go too overboard. Then it's entertainment, then they've got other problems. It's either not deductible, they don't get the GST credit, and they can be in a bit of strife. And all the, all the good that they wanted to do by trying to get, you know, offer this thank you and get a tax deduction, that's gonna be all undone. So just bear that in mind, but certainly a great idea is to say thank you. This is not necessarily a, a tax item for in the financial year, but just double check whether your client will be eligible. Many of you would have done this one to death for most of your clients. Um, but I saw, for example, the other day when I was um, looking into this further, in the last week or so, the WA government has extended further credits for electricity offsets, for example. If they're larger companies, there's water offsets as well. So this is not directly a tax item, but if you can assist your clients with uh, directing them to grants, credits and offsets, that's fantastic because that's going to take the burden off their cash flow. Um, and in particular, it might also assist them, say, for example, in Victoria, where things have been hit pretty hard. Um, there are certain offsets for business, duty, um, and also other credits which might be available for hiring. Um, just lastly, on this particular point as well, just confirm the tax treatment of the various offsets or credits. Um, I know even at the federal level, um, the different offsets and for example, cash flow boost, hiring credits, um, they each have, um, yeah, JobKeeper, they each had their own tax treatment. So just be really wary of that. Have a conversation now with your clients about whether they need to restructure their business. 30 June is a, a fantastic time to do that if it's required, because it means books, accounts, tax returns are all uh, done in a clean way for the financial year. There's no requirement to do a stub return, a part year management count, etc. So you reduce costs for a restructure, you strike a line in the sand for 30 June, and from 1 July, they're operating under their new structure there's still time to do all that in the next couple of weeks if they have to restructure a business. In particular, if it's a, uh, a private group, you might be moving the business from a family trust to uh, the trustee and, and you move the trustee around, etc. That can all be done this time of year. Um, the reason why I raise this is because what many of you might have seen from either JobKeeper um, or the, the loss carryback is that many of the the uh, concessions that are being raised by government now are only being given to certain types of taxpayers. So for example, you would have seen that at the start of JobKeeper, 
there was problems in respect of sole traders, and then the government had to change the rules, whereas companies got it straight away. So it's actually a good time to have discussions with clients who missed out on these types of concessions to say, are we operating in the right structure? Not just for the concessions, but also to, do we have the right structure for asset protection? 